calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. I'm Madigan, and you're listening to Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal feminist perspective. Heidi ho everybody. How are we doing on this glorious Monday morning? I hope none of you are going to jobs that you hate and that you're happy and content and finding as much peace as you can during a very, very chaotic month of October. I also hope that you are all very excited to celebrate Halloween, if that's something you're into. I am not doing shit for Halloween, and I am very, very upset about it because I actually came up with a fantastic costume idea for Max and I this year. I thought it would be the best thing ever if we were Sunny and Cher, but have Max be Cher and myself be Sunny. I thought that that would just be such a hit, so funny. But all of my friends are boring now. <laughs> don't do anything for Halloween, or at least don't invite us to do anything for Halloween. Maybe maybe we're the problem. Maybe I will end up having to tag along trick-or-treating with one of my little ones, just so I can celebrate a little bit, because Halloween is truly probably one of my absolute favorite holidays as an adult, since Christmas has kind of lost its luster since childhood. So I hope, unlike myself, all of you are doing something fun for the holiday if that is something that you're into. If not, it's just another Tuesday and you're good to go. I'm going to give you all the spiels for everything at the end. Let's just get into this episode. For some reason, many have this belief that if a woman does something to elevate other women, she's automatically a feminist. Next week's Notorious Bitch will be another great example of this, as will a subject from this month's book club. But is that the truth? Is that all it means to be labeled a feminist? Or should we have to consider the nuance? Women, much like men, can be self-serving. They may want success for themselves, but they do not necessarily care to bring up the other women around them.
The song Stand By Your Man by Tammy Wynette came out in 1968, the same year as the assassinations of Martin Luther King Jr. and Bobby Kennedy. Two black athletes raised their fists in protest at the Summer Olympics, Star Trek aired the nation's first televised interracial kiss, and a man would soon land on the goddamn moon. The Vietnam War was raging and the women's movement was arriving, yet Tammy Wynette wrote a song for women, sending them right back into the clutches of the feminine mystique. At least that's the opinion of many. The song was released as a single and stayed at the number one spot in the U.S. country charts for three weeks. She even pulled a Taylor Swift with her song shifting to the pop charts, peaking at number 19. This elevated Tammy from being one of many somewhat successful female country recording artists to superstar status. But Tammy Wynette was not a young starlet at this point in her career. According to one of the websites dedicated to Tammy Wynette, no other female country singer conveyed the emotion of heartbreak like Tammy Wynette. She endeared herself to millions by singing about the topics of every day, like divorce, loneliness, parenting, passion. Her tearful singing style was the voice of every heartbreak a woman has ever known. Perhaps it's that Tammy herself lived with such tumultuous times that she could convey the emotion of such weighty topics. Tammy Wynette is not the same as the other notorious bitches on the list for this month, but because of her complicated perception from women throughout history, I wanted to peel back the layers of this woman behind a song that has been hailed as an anti-feminist anthem. She was born and raised in Itawamba County in Mississippi by her mother, father, and grandparents. She was born on May 5, 1942, with the birth name of Virginia Wynette Pugh. For lack of confusion, I'm still going to be referring to her as Tammy throughout the episode. But it wouldn't be until later in life that she actually went by the name. Her mother was Mildred Faye Russell and her father, William Hollis Pugh. Her mother was a school teacher and her father was an aspiring musician who played guitar in a group. Unfortunately, her father was diagnosed with an inoperable brain tumor and died when Tammy was only nine months old. By the age of seven, she began picking cotton on her family's farm, but she always had dreams of being a famous singer. Her father's legacy was his musical instruments, and shortly before he passed away, he set his nine-month-old daughter in front of the piano and insisted that she learn to play when she came of age. After her father's death, Tammy and her mother moved to Memphis, Tennessee, where Mildred began working at a defense plant during World War II. During this time, Tammy was left with her grandparents, still picking cotton. She said in an interview years later about this work, I hated every minute I spent picking cotton. Yet some close, yet some close to her recall her keeping a crystal bowl of cotton as a symbolic reminder of her upbringing once she made it big. Tammy referred to her grandparents as Mama and Daddy and Mildred Russell as Mother. This gives me a pretty clear indication of what her relationship was like with her grandparents versus her mother. Mother just seems very proper. I almost get a sense that she had to be very polite and dignified and maybe a little bit less childlike around her mother, where when she was with her grandparents, she could fully be herself and just act like a little kid. I'm totally reading into this just from some of the context clues that I'm getting throughout this story, but I don't know. I, I feel like it's not very common for a child to call their mom mother. She was also being raised alongside her mother's sister, Carolyn, and the two children grew a sister-like bond. 
young Tammy was really good at basketball, but she wasn't allowed to play in the shorts provided to the girls' team, and her grandfather insisted that she wear blue jeans. This actually reminds me of Larry Bird. There's some story of him where he joined some basketball game and kicked total ass while wearing a pair of blue jeans or something like that. Blue jeans or no blue jeans, Tammy still made the All-State basketball team in both 1958 and 1959. She also continued to play the piano and learned to play by ear. After several lessons, the instructor told her mother she was wasting her money because of her daughter's natural ability on the instrument. In her middle school years, she made friends with a classmate named Linda Kaysen. The two became very close and soon realized that they could harmonize with one another. Soon, they added another girl and created a trio called Wynette, Linda, and Imogene, and they often sang at gospel functions together. They also sang on an early morning radio show a few times. Tammy went by the stage name Wynette because that's what most people called her at this time. In high school, she was considered popular by her friends. In 1960, she was voted Miss Tremont High School by her classmates. However, this popular darling also smoked cigarettes and became a little bit boy crazy. Her friend Holly Ford recalls, She was into dating and boys long before we were. But Tammy's mother disapproved of her daughter dating, and they often butted heads over it. During this period, Tammy fell for a boy at church named Billy Cole. Though Tammy was totally in love with this boy, convinced she was going to marry him, haven't we all been in there in high school? She kept the romance a secret from her mother. She was ballsy, though. She mail-ordered some inexpensive rings and had them sent to her high school behind her mother's back for she and Billy Cole. But try as she might, her mother still discovered her daughter's secret. The next boy in her life was Yupal Bird, who was five years older than her, and though Tammy was just 17 years old, she once again had her mind set on marriage. According to a couple sources, Tammy had initially had a thing for Yupal's older brother, D.C., but when he remarried his first wife, Tammy settled for the younger brother. Womp womp. The two got engaged, but when Tammy went to her mother to sign the necessary paperwork to allow her underage daughter to get married, her mother flat out refused and even kicked her out of the house. I just feel like she and her mom had a really, really tumultuous, bad relationship. It just doesn't seem like her mom is trying to understand the daughter and the daughter isn't paying any attention to what the mom wants and they are just like fire and kerosene. But she went running back to her grandfather, who came to the rescue, and signed the marriage papers so the two could be wed. Tammy then dropped out of school, and she and her new husband moved in with Yupal's family in a small apartment in Tupelo, Mississippi. And at this point, Tammy had already gotten pregnant. At this news, Tammy's grandfather came to the rescue once again by offering the young family a home to live in. While this is very, very sweet and a very nice gesture, the home had no running water, no heat, or electricity. They even had to nail cardboard boxes to the walls in the winter to keep the cold wind out of the house. In 1963, Yupal got a job in Red Bay, Alabama, working as a construction worker, and the family moved to a home with more amenities. Tammy also wanted to do her part in supporting her family and convinced her mother to loan her money to go to beauty school. Partway through her schooling, Yupal got another new job, and the family moved once again, this time to Memphis, Tennessee. There, Tammy got a job as a barmaid and sang for the customers. 
The bar owner and the building's in-house pianist were very impressed with her voice and began encouraging her to move to Nashville in order to pursue a career in music. However, this wouldn't happen for Tammy quite yet. The family was forced to move back to Tupelo and Tammy renewed her schooling for cosmetology. Tammy would actually continue renewing her cosmetology license every single year for the rest of her life, even after becoming famous, just in case she ever had to get another day job ever again. Together, Yupal and Tammy had two daughters within this time. By the way, Tammy is only 20 years old, and their names were Gwendolyn Lee and Jackie. Yupal and Tammy's marriage soon dissolved as the two had too many fundamental differences. They separated without an official divorce. But Tammy had gotten pregnant again just before the separation and soon gave birth to her third daughter, Tina. And Tina's birth was incredibly difficult. Tina was born with spinal meningitis and she barely survived her birth. When the marriage came to an end, Tammy had what they called at the time a nervous breakdown. And this is totally understandable. This woman now has three children, a marriage that's falling apart, a job that's probably not making her a ton of money, and her youngest child had an incredibly scary and dangerous birth. I would probably be having a nervous breakdown myself. Due to this, Tammy received electroshock therapy treatments. Now, of course, ECT therapy is highly controversial, but forms of this type of therapy are still used today. In fact, according to Psychology Today, this form of treatment is used on an estimated 1 million people annually. ECT works by using electricity to induce seizures, which is a very counterintuitive way of treating an illness, but it has been proven to be effective somehow. It was invented in the 30s in Italy, but psychiatrists had already discovered the effectiveness of electricity to relieve mental illness symptoms before then. Though ECT seems like a horrible form of torture, the Italians were actually trying to make a safer way to induce seizures without the use of a chemical called metrazole, which would put the patient into a state of terror before entering a seizure. Can you imagine? I would already be scared enough going through any sort of electroshock therapy. But if I took a drug that then made me feel immense terror before going through the shocks, that sounds even worse. ECT was seen as a safer and more humane therapy technique, actually. And within a few years of its invention, it was widely used in mental hospitals all over the world. Now, it was pretty dangerous when it was first used because in the 40s and 50s, shock therapy was administered without the use of muscle relaxers and the seizures resulted in a full-scale convulsion, which in extreme cases can lead to a fracture or dislocation of a bone. But by the 50s, though results were still coming from ECT, there was also a lot of evidence that the threat of using ECT on a patient was quite common as a way to try to control them and maintain order on the wards. Has anyone seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest? Thankfully, by the late 50s, early 60s, by the time Tammy would receive this treatment, muscle relaxants were much more commonly used prior to the procedure. It eventually fell out of style for a while in the late 60s until the 80s due to the anti-psychiatry movement, which viewed its use as inhumane and torturous, which I think a lot of people who don't know much about it will assume it is so still today. Tammy said her experience with shock therapy was horrible, but that it helped her. I am thankful that I have never had to go through ECT myself, but I do know a number of people who have had to go through that, 
And as someone who has witnessed not the process of the actual electroshock therapy, but just what the person is like afterwards, it's tough. Like they're they're very out of it. And I'm sure that has to do with a lot of the meds as well. But I knew someone that I was in treatment with who had received it a couple of times while I was living with her. And she was this like super bubbly young woman. She was much older than me, but she still acted like she was 16, which I think is also part of her trauma and things like that. But she acted like a teenager. She was just like super happy and bubbly and giggly and really, really fun to be around until shit hit the fan. But then after she would go through these ECT treatments, she would just be so subdued and just like curled into herself. But it did really help her. And I never heard her complain about it or anything like that. I did have another friend who was a really close friend of mine in high school who had ECT when she was a young adult, like 18 or 19. And I don't know if it was due to the therapy or due to her mental health severely declining between the times that we were really close in high school to like a couple of years later when she would come visit me in LA. But she completely changed. She just would be like off sometimes. It was hard to explain. And being in a friendship with her was really, really difficult as well. Again, I don't know if that had anything to do with ECT or if that just has to do with her mental illness as a whole. But I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, man, that really fucked with her. But after a lot of the reading that I did, of course, I had to do all these side googs. I found that it's like it's still pretty common and it's okay. Like I, I'm not necessarily against it. I think for people who really, really need it, as long as it's done in the most humane way possible, that drugs are being administered that will not make you feel terror, but will actually maybe relax you, put you under so you're not aware of the experience. But I definitely think that after movies like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest and so many other horror stories that were released during the time where it truly was quite inhumane, I think people still have this idea about ECT that isn't quite true. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Anyway, back to Tammy. Unfortunately, this medical intervention left her with $6,000 in medical bills to pay. And now, a single mother, she had to work even harder than ever to survive. She still wanted a divorce from Yupal, but her mother refused her from doing so. God damn it, Mildred. <laughs> and she sent Tammy and her children to Birmingham, Alabama. Fellow beautician and friend of Tammy's from the time, Judy Moore, says, Back then, she was like a lot of us, a divorcee, trying to make a living, wanting to do something besides fix hair. But she took her ambition and went with it. 
Tammy was soon hired to sing on a local AM TV program, The Country Boy Eddie Show, where she was paid about $30 a week. But hey, she got her foot in the door. She also had to go back to cosmetology school at the time since her license didn't transfer over to Alabama, and she would sing on the show from 6 to 8 a.m. each morning before going to school, then went to work at the Midfield Beauty Salon after that. She was busy. While working for the Country Boy Eddie show, she made friends with the show's pianist named David Vest, who helped her record her first demos, and the pair began performing together in piano bars around town. Tammy soon began visiting her local radio station, WYAM, and met the DJ Fred Leher, who would take her with him on a trip to Nashville. This trip inspired Tammy to begin truly pursuing her country music career. At this time, Yupol came back into the picture for just a bit, and the two lived in, the housing, pro- in housing projects in Birmingham. But this didn't last long. During one of their last encounters, Tammy told Yupel her dreams of becoming a country performer, to which he told her, dream on, baby, dream on. The story goes, a decade later, he attended one of her concerts and she signed an autograph to him, writing, dream on, baby, love, Tammy. We love a petty queen. In January 1966, she decided to move herself and her three children to Nashville in order to focus solely on landing a record deal. I can't imagine how terrifying this would be because even following my dreams right now is financially costing me. When getting to Nashville, they moved into the Anchor Motel, while Tammy went all over town trying to secure a record contract. At the Anchor Motel, Tammy met her next future husband, musician Don Chappell, who worked at the front desk, and they eventually moved into an East Nashville apartment and put together a show for the two of them. The couple would marry sometime in 1967. The couple would also add Don's daughter Donna to the performance. Donna was 14 at the time that her dad married Tammy, around the same time that people started to take notice of her singing talent as well. Donna would sing backup for Tammy throughout her marriage with Don, and her brother Mike would sometimes join in as well. Together, they recorded six number one records and two albums. They took the show on the road for several months through several states. On their travels, Don also did his best to set Tammy up with a record contract, but she was turned down by every single company. Until she got a meeting with Epic Records and producer Billy Sherrill, who was impressed by her voice and signed her to a contract. It was Billy who suggested that she take the stage name Tammy Wynette, saying, You look like a Tammy to me. Okay. Well, all this risk paid off. When Tammy Wynette hit the scene, Rolling Stone wrote, She came out of the gate with a barrage of successful singles. The first record they did together was a cover of Bobby Austin's song, Apartment Number no. 9, and it was released as her debut single, reaching number 44 on the American Billboard Hot Country charts. But just because you have a hot new song doesn't mean big bucks. She was still barely making any money. So she began to plan a tour, hoping to gain some recognition and money along the way. But most promoters didn't want to book her because she was a woman. She later said, I had begun to realize I was working in a man's world and most of them looked down on women in the business. Due to how difficult it was for Tammy and all female artists to make their way in the industry, Tammy's success story is often heralded as a feminist one, which I frankly disagree with. Like I said, just because a woman helps break some glass ceilings for other women doesn't make her inherently feminist. In 1967, Tammy released the single, Your Good Girl's Gonna Go Bad, which climbed to number three on the country charts. 
She released an album of the same name later that year, and the album reached number seven on the charts. This success was followed by a duet with David Houston called My Elusive Dreams, which was her first number one single. Riding this wave, she released I Don't Want to Play House, which topped the 1967 charts and later won Tammy a Grammy for Best Female Country Vocal Performance. And then in 1968, just before Stand By Your Man, her songs Take Me to Your World and D-I-V-O-R-C-E also reached the top spots. With this newfound success, Tammy set off on another tour with her husband Don in tow with a band they formed called the Countrypolitans. They toured internationally to Germany and the UK, and her fame grew and grew. It was in the late 60s that Tammy met George Jones for the first time while on tour. She was 11 years younger than George, and she had grown up listening to all of his records. She was definitely a super fan. And George got along well with Tammy and Don, and the three would often spend time together on the road. From George's 1996 autobiography, he says he fell in love with Tammy right away. And Tammy has said, I loved him from the start. As the three spent more time together, Don seems to have become jealous of Tammy's admiration of George and his talent. Don would yell at her for playing George's records so often and became very verbally abusive to her. As George took notice of this behavior, his opinion of Don declined. Apparently, he once even flipped the dinner table in their family home after one of Don's outbursts at Tammy. The story of the first time George professed his love for Tammy is a doozy. <laughs> one evening after Tammy had returned from touring, she found her three daughters horribly sick with food poisoning. Tammy took the girls to the hospital where she was joined by Jones, not her husband or the children's father. When Don finally got home, he reportedly became irate at George, asking him, What's it to you? Which George responded, I love Tammy and she loves me too. Don't you, Tammy? She answered with a yes, and the pair left with her children that night. What would follow is a lifelong, tumultuous relationship between George and Tammy. But Don wasn't letting go so easily. During their marriage, Don had secretly taken nude photographs of Tammy and now that she was leaving him for the legendary George Jones, he planned to distribute the photos and ruin her career and her life. Fragile masculinity at its finest, my friends. She would have been blackballed from the country music industry, not to mention the fact that she could also potentially lose her children and be seen as an unfit mother. And this pisses me off so fucking much. One, because from what I can tell, Tammy did not consent to these photos being taken. It was one of those things where like he would open the shower curtain and take a picture. At least that's what's depicted in the George and Tammy TV show on Showtime. So it doesn't seem like she was standing there posing for her husband or that she was taking photos of herself for any reason. I was actually just talking to a friend about this, how we love taking naked photos of ourselves, not for any sort of reason to send to other people or to even really look at. But it's one of those things where I'm like, one, I look good. I look very good naked. Two, I'm not going to look this good forever. So I might as well take some pictures of proof for myself when I'm in my 60s and 70s and I can go flipping through them and be like, damn girl, you had it going on. That's what I'm looking for. And no one today would hear that or see those pictures and automatically, hopefully, not think I'm a bad person because of it or think that I should lose my career or if I had children, not be able to care for them. 
This reminds me of a few years ago when all of those celebrities' nude photos were released. I remember there was a really, really terrible nickname for that. I want to say it was like Fapgate or something. Like, oh, it's so gross. So clearly things haven't changed that much. But I do have a feeling that in the year of 2023, if someone's nudes were found, Hopefully it would not be their fault for taking the naked photo and it would be the fault of the person who released them because they are the bad guy in this situation. But thankfully they were soon rid of Don when it came to light that their marriage had actually been invalid due to Tammy marrying too quickly after her divorce from Yupol. My goodness, I didn't know that was a thing. Why did no one tell them that? How was their marriage license valid? Like, how, how did we, how did we do this? But this was absolutely great news for Tammy and George, and they wed on February 16th, 1969. And a year later, they welcomed another little baby girl to the family who they named Tamala Georgette. She would go by Georgette, which I think is probably a good idea because sorry to any of the Tamalas out there. Ooh, not a big fan. But you know what? Maybe Tammy should have learned from her last quick marriage and taken a little bit more time to get to know George as a person, not just as a performer. George struggled heavily with addiction to alcohol. And when George was drunk, he became mean and difficult to control. He would go off and disappear for days on end on marathon benders. And he would often lash out at Tammy. Back in 1962, George recorded a cover of Bob Wills' song, Warm Red Wine. In it, there's a line that goes, I'm a prisoner of drink who will never escape. This was an eerie look into George's future. George never hid his behaviors from his fans, though, as he had become notorious as a hard-drinking man. In 1996, he made a music video memorializing a time he rode his lawnmower into a liquor store after his wife hid his keys. There is some debate over whether or not the wife in this story was Tammy Wynette. Tammy claims that it was her who had hidden George's keys one day when he wanted to go to the liquor store. So he took the lawnmower and drove it into the liquor store instead. But I believe George claims that it was his first wife. He also wrote a song called No Show Jones, which is a nickname he earned for canceling so many of his performances. In 1967, George's binge drinking and use of amphetamines left him in a neurological hospital for treatment. The man was not doing well. By the time Tammy Starr was rising in the mid-60s, George's was unfortunately falling. And I'm sure this didn't help his alcoholism very much either. When speaking on their marriage in her autobiography, Stand By Your Man, Tammy claimed that she found herself on the receiving end of George's drunken violent streaks during their marriage. She speaks of one instance where George chased her through the house with a loaded rifle in 1975 toward the end of their marriage. Allegedly, these types of incidents happened frequently during their marriage, often leaving Tammy with bruises on her face, using makeup to cover them on stage. And this just breaks my heart. And when I discuss this part of the story, this is why I feel bad about even putting her in the notorious bitches category. But I'm like, I wouldn't talk about her as a feminist fave. I do think that she is kind of a notorious bitch, no matter what, in a positive and negative sense. Hearing about the amount of abuse that she's been through in her life, her unbelievably tough childhood, Losing her father so early, going from man to man and marriage to marriage, 
and really just struggling through all of them. It just doesn't seem like she ever gave herself the space to be able to flourish on her own and flourish as her own woman as well. And just kept falling into this terrible cycle of falling for really abusive and harmful men. It's these stories that make the song Stand By Your Man, in my opinion, incredibly heartbreaking. Because to me, it really displays what Tammy's feelings are about what a woman's role is in a relationship. No matter what, no matter how terribly she's treated, a woman is expected to stay with the man, stand by the man, forgive him, be proud of him, all of those things. And at the end of the day, he's still going to treat you like shit. George would sometimes quit drinking for stretches of time, but always eventually made his way back to the bottle. While things behind the scenes were contentious and dangerous at worst, their professional careers were both bolstered due to the new marriage. They became known as Mr. and Mrs. Country Music. Together, they performed the song My Elusive Dreams on the Road. With their shared success, they purchased a home in Lakeland, Florida, and a $100,000 12-bed superbus with Mr. and Mrs. Country Music emblazoned on it. In 1968, in allegedly between 15 to 20 minutes, Tammy and Bill Sherrill wrote the song Stand By Your Man. Billy Sherrill and Tammy had already recorded a few songs for her fifth album, and they only had one hour left in the studio. Legend has it that Billy pulled out a crumpled piece of paper with the lyrics to a song called I'll Stand By You, You Please Stand By Me, but there was already a hit song at the time from Ben E. King with the name Stand By Me. So when Tammy and Billy sat down to change it up, allegedly one of the band members piped in with the suggestion, how about Stand By Your Man? After roughly 20 minutes, the song was written, then recorded in no more than three or four takes. Here's how Tammy initially felt about the song. Well, it was totally different from the other songs that I had done, the kid-type songs, D-I-V-O-R-C-E, and I Don't Want to Play House, and those types of things. And to me, it did not have a pretty melody. I didn't like it. I hated the high notes that I had to hit. I mean, I just didn't like it. And I told Billy, I said, well, I didn't have confidence in my writing either because I had never written with Billy Sherrill before. And he was a wonderful writer. And I knew that he'd written almost persuaded and some great songs. So I didn't know. I just wasn't, you know, confident at all. She said when she played the song for George that evening, who was not yet her husband at the time, he said he didn't like it. Granted, she hadn't told him that she had written it, but still. In the show George and Tammy on Showtime, they show the writing of this song framed around Tammy discovering the more violent side of her new husband, which doesn't completely seem to line up with the actual timeline. But I think the song gives a lot of indication to the mindset that Tammy had about her relationships, like I said. From some sources I found online, the song was written while her marriage with Don was ending and her relationship with George was beginning, so it's unclear which man she had in mind for the song, if she was writing about one of her relationships in particular at all. This song to me is very sad and seems like an anthem to women, telling them that dealing with their husband's bad behavior was simply a cross they have to bear. The song opens, Sometimes it's hard to be a woman Giving all your love to just one man. The second phrase, in my opinion, is cleverly written and potentially easily overlooked. You'll have bad times, and he'll have good times. 
In this phrase, she's saying that that while the man will have all the good times, the women will have the bad times. She goes on. But if you love him, you'll forgive him. Even though he's hard to understand. I hate that she rhymes the same words over and over again, by the way. But this line seems super toxic to me because it heavily implies that love is all one needs for a relationship to work and be healthy. Love can really only get you so far because you can love someone and hurt them at the same time. I love and have loved some people that are really bad for me, and a lot of times they don't deserve forgiveness. She goes on. And if you love him, oh, be proud of him. And this next part is some petty shade that I love. Because after all, He's just a man. Stand by your man. Give him two arms to cling to and something warm to come to when nights are cold and lonely. Stand by your man and show the world you love him. Keep giving all the love you can. Stand by your man. Now, like I said, this song came out in 1968, right at the time of the upward momentum of the second wave of feminism, and boy, did they have a problem with this tune, and I don't blame them. Our second waivers were doing their damnedest to push women's role further in society. And here was Tammy Wynette telling them to be okay with their sad, pathetic lives and their miserable husbands. Tammy's publicist and friend, Evelyn Shriver, said in recent years that Tammy never tired of singing the song, though she grew tired of defending it. What she said is, It's unbelievable to me that a song that took me 20 minutes to write, I've spent 20 or 30 years defending. And apparently the fact that this song aligned with the rise of the women's movement was taken advantage of by Epic Records because they released a full-page ad in Billboard magazine with the tagline reading, Tammy Wynette's answer to women's lib, Stand By Your Man, new release. Whew, just fanning those flames. When the song was released, it hit number one on the Billboard country charts, and weeks later it crossed over becoming a top 20 hit on the pop charts. A Newsweek article called the song for the beleaguered housewife who grits her teeth as destiny dumps its slop on her head. (laughs) Yikes! Fellow country artist of Harper Valley PTA fame, Jeannie C. Riley said, It sounds like you should take anything he dishes out. In response to this criticism, Tammy said, The women I knew, my mother, my grandmother, my aunts, they stood by their man. Nowhere does it say be a doormat and let this man walk on you. And if you want to look at it more closely, did Tammy actually practice standing by her man? She was married five times in her life, and each time she was the one to leave if she was no longer in love. To me, this negates the idea of being stuck with an unhappy marriage and miserable husband. Here are Tammy's own words regarding the women's movement, though. 
I can sympathize very easily because I have seen it happen in Mississippi, where I was raised, and Alabama growing up as a child, where a woman couldn't make a third of what a man could make doing an identical job. I can sympathize with that, and I feel it's very wrong. A woman should be equal to a man for anything she's capable of doing. But I still feel there's a lot of things she isn't capable of doing physically. Personally, I'm not fond of the thought of digging ditches or climbing telephone poles. I'd rather stick with something a little more feminine. I wouldn't want to lose the little courtesies that we've always been extended, like lighting cigarettes and opening doors and pulling out chairs and things like that. I enjoy that. I guess I just enjoy being a woman. Gosh, ladies, don't you miss the days when men would light your cigarettes for you? Gee, good old days. I don't know, I... I know it's probably of the time, but I get really annoyed when men do things for me. Like, I I don't mind an, a door being opened for me or held open for me or whatever, but there are times where it just gets taken a little too far where I feel like they're trying to take care of me. And I'm like, look, I am a full-grown woman. I can take care of myself. This is fine. And I also understand that Tammy herself doesn't want to go climbing telephone poles and digging dishes, but like, what if another woman does? Shouldn't we be advocating for that? I don't know. She continued to defend the song in her 1979 memoir, saying, I don't see anything in that song that implies a woman is supposed to sit home and raise babies while a man goes out and raises hell. To me, it means be supportive of your man, show him you love him and that you're proud of him, and be willing to forgive him if he doesn't always live up to your image of what he should be. In response to that, I say... What do you expect of your man then? Do you expect him to forgive all of your mistakes? Does he show you that he loves you in the image that you desire from him? Isn't it all about the woman putting up with shit in this song? There's nothing in the song that's about equality. And in fact, I would argue that there is a little bit of the song that says it's okay that a man can go out and raise hell and a woman just needs to be unhappy about it. Okay, Now, let's fast forward to 1992 for just a moment. Remember in last week's episode where I played a clip from the Clinton's 60 Minutes interview discussing the Jennifer Flowers allegations? You know, I'm not sitting here as some little woman standing by my man like Tammy Wynette. Apparently, Tammy Wynette was watching this episode of 60 Minutes in her bedroom in Nashville, and when she heard what Hillary had to say, Tammy, quote, exploded. (laughs) She said... I came up out of the bed. It didn't make me so mad about the song right then. It made me mad because she said some little old woman. (laughs) I love that. But then she released the statement shortly afterward. With all that is in me, I resent your caustic remark. I, with no apologies, am as angry as I can be with your statement, Mrs. Clinton. You have offended every woman and man who love that song, several million in number. I believe you have offended every true country music fan and every person who has made it on their own with no one to take them to the White House. Do I love the shade? Yes, but come on, Tammy, don't make yourself or that song that important. Hillary responded, I didn't mean to hurt Tammy Wynette as a person. I happen to be a country western fan. If she feels like I've hurt her feelings, I'm sorry about that. Ooh, that's a little shady back and I love it. Okay, back to the late 1960s. In 1969, Tammy became the first female country singer to be certified gold by the Recording Industry Association of America, released a Greatest Hits album, and joined the Grand Ole Opry, cementing her country star status. 
But while Tammy and George appeared to be riding high together in public, the violent nature of their relationship continued. The first time Tammy filed for divorce, yes, there were multiple filings for divorce, was in 1973, but they reconciled a month later. She told People Magazine that this was nothing more than a ploy concocted by her husband's doctors to get him to stop drinking. The second time she filed for divorce was two years later in 1975, saying, It's over. This is it. George Jones said in an interview in 1977, I drank a little more than I should, even though I hated my daddy for drinking. He said the couple's real problem in the marriage was that their tempers flared before they could find the time to talk about what was bothering them. Regarding how the divorce ended, George said, I let Tammy have everything. I didn't fight it. I got a car and a couple thousand bucks in my pocket. Their marriage was over, but they continued to make music together. They released hit songs such as Golden Ring and Near You. Sarah Kettler of Biography commented, Despite the many ups and downs, including two divorce filings, the pair still recorded some of the best duets in country music history. Around this time, Tammy was linked to movie star Burt Reynolds for a bit, but then quickly moved on to realtor Michael Tomlin, who she married knowing him for only a few weeks in 1976. Again, not breaking the cycle. However, this marriage was short-lived, and it ended just six weeks later. After they returned from the honeymoon, Tammy claimed that her new husband had spent too much money and had attempted to fire a gun on the beach, which scared her and her children. Maybe this is a lesson in knowing your partners a little bit longer before we marry them? Maybe? After this, George and Tammy would waffle back and forth from being on good terms and more tension. In 1977, George Jones told People Magazine, Tammy and I are getting along better than we ever did when we were married. I think we still love each other. I know I love her. And I feel like George just loved her forever. That's just kind of the impression that I get that he would have really loved to have stayed married to her, but knew that he was an asshole and an alcoholic and seems to have just accepted that he had to have Tammy in his life in some way, but not in the way that he wanted. Because it seems that Tammy did not reciprocate these feelings, as on July 6th, 1978, she married once again, this time to songwriter and record producer George Ritchie, who had written quite a few songs for George Jones in the past. Either George was delusional or their feelings for each other went up and down like a yo-yo, because the following year after George stated his love for Tammy, she filed a lawsuit against him for $26,000 in unpaid child support. Yikes. Tammy and George Ritchie, who I will now just call Ritchie so there's no confusion, had known each other for quite a long time, and he had written songs for her as well in the past. Finally, maybe breaking the cycle. She's like, okay, I've known this guy for a while. Now we're just new to knowing each other romantically. They allegedly bonded when Tammy was experiencing some health problems, and Ritchie visited her often when she was recovering in the hospital. He apparently professed his love for her one evening after a recording session, and they married shortly after. Then, Richie became Tammy's full-time manager. Reading this for the first time, I already got a little bit nervous. One of his first moves was to fire several of Tammy's female road crew members. He told a co-worker, I cannot start a life with and build a relationship with Tammy and her girls when I'm living in a female dormitory jerk. He also took over control of her money. Ugh. 
big red flags going up. So it isn't surprising that this relationship caused tension between Tammy and her loved ones. According to her daughter, Georgette, Richie would try to keep Tammy away from her friends and even kept Georgette away from her biological father as well because Richie didn't want her to see him. Tammy's middle daughter, Jackie, claimed that Richie also enabled her mother's drug addiction. Yes, Tammy also struggled with addiction herself. It all began after having to undergo multiple operations in her life and having to get back to work within weeks of each procedure. She was prescribed pain pills, a tale as old as time. I don't have any statistics in front of me or anything, but I do know that I've heard that a large majority of people, at least in the United States, who get hooked on opioids start by being addicted to the things that their doctors prescribe them, but then those become too expensive and they turn to heroin and it's just awful. One of the procedures that Tammy had to undergo was a hysterectomy following the birth of her daughter Georgette in 1970. This procedure brought on a host of other health issues that would affect her for the rest of her life. She told Larry King in 2001, When I was hurting so bad, I would take one and the pain would stop. And an hour later, I'd think, gosh, I don't have that pain now. If I take another pill, it will go away and it wouldn't come back. Oh, devastating. Eventually, she said she was taking pills even when she wasn't hurting. She started hospital hopping, getting her hands on as many pills as she could to feed her addiction. And it seems that Richie also enabled this drug addiction quite a lot as a friend recalls that he would sneak her drugs and they would hear him say to her, you will never ever want for anything as long as I'm here. Again, this is all kind of hearsay from friends, but it really does seem like Richie was incredibly controlling, manipulative, and potentially abusive of Tammy. Singer Lori Morgan chimed in with her thoughts on the Tammy-Richie relationship, stating that she believed that Richie was after her money. Georgette, in my opinion, calls it what it was, an emotionally abusive relationship. Tammy's drug usage became more and more frequent, eventually injecting Demerol and Valium directly into her veins, administered by members of her road crew, in order to perform. After a while, her doctors began to pick up on her addiction and ceased prescribing the pain medicine. I'll touch a little bit more on Tammy's drug addiction in a little bit, but I want to move on for a short period of time. Because before I go any further, there were some other quite odd things that did occur during this time in Tammy's life that I think is important to discuss before going further into her addiction issues. Among the most well-known of these incidents was when Tammy claimed to have been kidnapped. She was shopping at a mall in Nashville on October 4th, 1978, when upon returning to her unlocked car, she claims a man had been hiding in her back seat with a gun. She said, I felt a poke in my side and heard a man's voice say, drive. Allegedly, as they drove, the masked gunman strangled Tammy with a pair of pantyhose so forcefully that it left a mark, and he had also punched her. She was released 80 miles away in Giles County, Tennessee, and the man got in another car. Tammy claimed to have been suffering from neck injuries, and a local resident brought her a cold, wet rag and called Tammy's family. The woman who took care of her at the scene, Junette Young, said, Her cheek was skinned. Her neck wasn't cut but swollen and red from whatever had been tied around her neck. Richie then appeared at the scene to retrieve her. The Nashville police found the incident, quote, very puzzling. Though she had suffered a broken cheekbone and horrible bruising to her face, she wasn't sexually assaulted or robbed, despite having 30 credit cards, holy shit, and $40 in cash on her. 
Then Tammy alleged more incidents that were said to be connected to the kidnapping. Several days later, Georgette was nearly abducted from her school. Shortly after that, when Tammy performed in South Carolina for a performance, she received a crumpled up note saying, I'm still around. I'll get you. Before these incidents, there was also a time when George Ritchie allegedly found eight X's drawn on their house. Their house had apparently also caught on fire and they were constantly being broken into and their phones had been tapped. There were also many stories going around about who was responsible for these incidents. Some thought it was George Jones trying to get his revenge on Tammy. Others thought Tammy was using the kidnapping story to cover up an infidelity. But both Jackie and Georgette say that the kidnapping story was staged in order to cover up being beaten by Richie. To this, Richie retorted, Jackie's allegations that I abused Tammy are preposterous. To the contrary, I spent 20 years with Tammy, loving her and taking care of her in her career. In Georgette's 2011 memoir, she wrote in support of her sister's claims. She says, She did admit to my sister that when all that stuff came out about her being kidnapped in 1978, that she and Richie had had a fight and he had beaten her. He threatened to destroy her life and write a tell-all book, so she decided to stay with him. So he concocted the kidnapping story for PR. The speculation that she wasn't being truthful was really hard on Tammy, saying, Two-thirds of people are wonderful. The other third, I would have to say, were the cranks who said it was all done for a publicity stunt, which broke my heart, or that it was done to hide an affair I was having. She goes on, I don't know any woman who would want her face damaged. If I wanted publicity, I'd go down to Possum Holler and dance all night. Richie reported saying that he thinks he knows who is responsible for all this and we're going to put an end to it. He then added, it's a professional job with some amateurish aspects just to throw us off. Is it Richie? Maybe I consume too much true crime, but I feel like Richie is behind this all. In November of 1986, Tammy spoke publicly about her drug problem for the first time when she announced that she would be receiving treatment at the Betty Ford Center. Unfortunately, three weeks into her six-week program, Tammy began to have stomach pains after her afternoon meal, and they eventually had to hospitalize her for an intestinal blockage. The blockage revealed that past surgeries had caused a narrowing of the area where food left her stomach. Ouch! This surgery was eight hours long, and they removed 25% of her stomach. Oh my gosh! To make it worse, they then put her back on the same drugs that she was hooked on to relieve her pain, which just reinstated her addiction. In the 90s, she added another drug, which I think is pronounced diluted, to the mix, often carrying the drug with her in her purse. In 1993, she went into a coma for several days due to a bile duct infection and high blood pressure. Thankfully, she later made a full recovery. Drugs would remain a part of her life for the remainder of her life, which ended in 1998. She and Richie remained married until her death, and she lived a very small life, often being very sick. She died in her sleep at her Nashville home on April 6, 1998. She was 55 years old. Apparently, she and George Richie had spent the day sleeping on the living room couches, and he discovered that evening that his wife was dead. A doctor initially wrote the cause of death as a blood clot in her lung, but there was no doubt that the drugs contributed to her death. I don't know. I wonder if maybe both of them had a lot of drug issues and that's why they were just both 
passed out on the couch all day and Richie didn't even think to check on his wife. It just seems really, really sad, but also kind of fishy to me, the whole circumstance of her death. And it just gets more complicated after she passes away, as it often happens with any person that has a lot of money who then dies. According to Tammy's children, a will was written a year prior to her death on a yellow legal pad, which wasn't found following Tammy's death. On it, Tammy wrote that her money would be given to her four daughters over a period of time. Instead, they were denied their inheritance by George Ritchie. Executive decisions were made by Richie and his brother Carl, and Richie received a $1 million estate policy, along with an additional $1.4 million on his own insurance policy. Richie's behavior made her daughters question their mother's death. In April 1999, the daughters filed a wrongful death lawsuit after an investigation discovered that a local drug company called Care Solutions had been delivering drugs to Tammy's home throughout 1998. The lawsuit was filed against a specific doctor, Care Solutions, the company, and George Ritchie. They claim that they were all responsible for their mother's death, and they claim that Ritchie denied the advice of doctors who had told him to take Tammy to a hospital in the days leading up to her death. Tammy's body was even exhumed in 1999 for another autopsy. Richie was later dropped from the suit, and the court dismissed the claims against Care Solutions. The remaining parties reached a settlement. In 2012, her tombstone was changed from stating the name Tammy Wynette to Virginia W. Richardson, her legal name at the time of her death. Through Facebook, they launched a campaign to help change the name back, and after 3,000 fans voted in support, the name was changed back to Tammy Wynette in 2014. Tammy Wynette's impact on the country music scene created the legacy of her being the first lady of country music, though I personally think that role belongs to Patsy Cline. Journalist Claudia Levy from the Washington Post called Tammy one of country music's most influential singers, as her career had influenced an entire generation of female country singers. Faith Hill said, Especially with the next generation developing and creating their music, I think it's important they hear Tammy Wynette. An alternate meaning to Stand By Your Man in 2021, saying that the song had a double meaning, which reflected both the loyalty women show to their spouses, as well as the strength they have as women. I don't know if I agree, but okay. Artists who have cited Tammy as their inspiration include Garth Brooks, Roseanne Cash, Brandi Carlisle, Terry Clark, Cheryl Crow, Sarah Evans, Maritha Etheridge, Emmylou Harris, Elton John, Martina McBride, Taylor Swift, Shania Twain, Tanya Tucker, Carrie Underwood, and Leanne Womack. In 1991, Tammy received the Living Legend Award by Country City News. She was then inducted into the Alabama Music Hall of Fame in 1993. She performed for several presidents in her lifetime, including Ronald Reagan at the White House in 1983 and in 1991 at Ford's Theater for George H.W. Bush. Clear to see she was probably a Republican. She was inducted into the Country Music Hall of Fame in 1998, and in 1999, Stand By Your Man was inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. The song was later added to the National Recording Registry. In 2009, she was inducted into the Nashville Songwriters Hall of Fame, and Rolling Stone ranked her number 16 on their list of greatest country artists of all time in 2017. They also ranked her song Stand By Your Man at number 473 in the magazine's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. In her career, she released 34 studio albums as a solo artist, 
and another nine with George Jones. Lastly, did you know that she was the voice of Tilly Hill, Hank's mother in the show King of the Hill? (laughs) That's the last note that I wrote on this script. That's hilarious. Well, overall, I have a lot of complicated feelings about Tammy Wynette, but doing this episode actually helped me put her in a much more positive light in my mind because I know more about her history, which I think really makes me empathize with her a lot more because I also really see myself in a lot of the song Stand By Your Man and how I felt in some past relationships where it's like, yeah, he treats me terribly and yeah, there's all these terrible things about him, but he loves me and that's enough. And it really is an example of, I think, what a lot of women at the time expected and put up with in their relationships from men. And I just find the tie into when this song was released and the women's movement and Hillary Clinton's relation to the song and all of it, I just find it being such an interesting topic. The song is still very much hailed as an anti-feminist anthem, and I think the song in and of itself is incredibly problematic, but it's also a really fantastic song, and I listen to it all the time on Spotify, and I really, really love Tammy Wynette's voice. I would just never play this song for my future child and be like, here's a great example of a woman, you know? And while Tammy Wynette is far from being a feminist, she did do a lot for women, and I think that that was something that she was really proud of. She saw how hard all of the women in her life worked and how hard all of her fellow female country artists worked as well, and I think she was really proud of the mark that she was able to make on country music. But that doesn't mean that she had forward-thinking political views or was on board with the women's movement or anything like that. And that's whatever. She is who she is. But hailing her as some anti-feminist icon I don't think is necessarily correct either. Like I said, she's incredibly complicated in my opinion. I'm really interested in what all of you think of this episode. I was a little bit nervous putting her in this category and then having a lot of people get really mad at me. So we'll see if that happens on social media because often it's from the people that don't actually listen to the show. They just see the post and they're like, why are you hating on her? And I'm like, I'm not listening, I swear. I do still consider Tammy Wynette to be a notorious bitch. She is notorious in the amount of awards she received and for the amount of admiration that she also received during her life and afterward. She is a commendable artist and has a beautiful voice and does deserve to be celebrated. But let me know what your thoughts are on Miss Tammy Wynette. What did you think of this episode? What are your thoughts? Did I totally miss the mark? I don't know. Let me know. And good news, everybody, there is a new episode on Patreon for the Angry Feminist Book Club for those of you who have not checked your notifications. If you want to listen to part one of my coverage of Savage Appetites by Rachel Monroe, that is available now. And the second episode will be up by Wednesday, the 1st of November, covering the second half of the book Savage Appetites. And I've already been working on it. I love it. I really enjoyed the book. But if you want to know more of my thoughts, you should go to patreon.com slash angry neighborhood feminist and join the angry feminist book club at the $5 level. But if you want to show even more support for the show, you can join the Feminist Faves level, which is $8 a month, where you get all of the Angry Feminist Book Club content. You get these episodes ad-free and usually a little bit early. You're going to get some bonus content thrown in there, and it's just a fun place to be. As always, I really appreciate all of your love and support. 
And also, for those of you who love the show and just haven't left a review yet, I greatly urge you to do it now. Please go over to Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review with a quick sentence about why you enjoy the show. I know many of you listen on Spotify, but I would really, really appreciate more Apple Podcast reviews. It really, really, really helps me out a whole lot, but I also really appreciate being rated on Spotify as well. All right, everyone. Happy Halloween. The next episode isn't going to be very spooky either. I feel like I got my spookiest episode out of the way first because I was excited to get Leonardo Chinchuli's story out there. But next week's episode is going to be a really, really good one. So hold on to your butts. But that's all I have for you today. With all that being said, I encourage you to rage on. Bye. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics, and sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot-button issues, and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.